0: Shalom. This is not my first time at First Press, Uh, San Mateo. Uh, I was here for the first time almost 48 years ago. That predates a lot of the people sitting in the pews and online right now. Uh, Jews for Jesus was just beginning here in the Bay Area, and we were so excited about what God was doing to reach Jewish people with the gospel. And my mentor and boss, Moish Rosen, said, we need to get some churches to partner with us, churches that are like-minded, that love the Lord, that want to see the gospel spread. And pretty much the top of the list was First Press San Mateo. So he had me put together a presentation book. This was before we could do everything digitally and uh, with photos and little stories And I came and I sat in the office of the then-senior pastor, Pastor Pittman, and I told him about the wonderful works of God going on through Jews for Jesus. And I have to tell you that we were so warmly welcomed here. You became some of our first partners. And so I feel like as we're almost approaching a half a century of Jews for Jesus, You've come along with us during that time, and as I see the outreaches that you're looking to do this Advent season, the church hasn't changed. Uh, The church is going forward in power and in proclamation of the gospel, so I just want to commend you all for that and say how glad I am to be here with you. Now, because it is the first Sunday in Advent, um, I felt similar to our children's message. I wanted to talk about Advent from the Hebrew scriptures. But I wanted to start with a quote from Christopher Hitchens, which may sound strange, the atheist. Okay, Uh, He wrote this in his memoir. He said, I suppose the one reason I have detested religion is in its sly tendency to insinuate the idea that the universe is designed with you in mind, or even worse, that there is a divine plan into which one fits whether one knows it or not. This kind of modesty is too arrogant for me. Well, I think we have a statement back to Christopher Hitchens and those who think like him. Um, This is the first Sunday of Advent. And I wanna talk about how we know that there is a divine plan. The Bible isn't fictional. It's just not a historical narrative that Jesus did come and he dwelled among us. And this month we focus on the one who came and he did so with you and I in mind. Uh, Augustine, the famous 4th century uh, bishop from North Africa was uh, quoted as saying the New Testament is the Old Concealed and the Old Testament is the New revealed. In other words, what we learn about Jesus in the New Testament, the virgin birth, uh, his birth in Bethlehem, the rejection of his contemporaries, which were basically my Jewish people, his atoning death and his resurrection, his being the Son of God, it's all there in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. But if you read the New Testament, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you or me. Jesus himself says in John 5 to a group of religious Jewish leaders, you diligently uh, diligently study the, the scriptures because you think in them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify of me. And then he went on to say, if you believed in Moses and the prophets, you would have believed in me, for they spoke of me. Now, when we look at the four Gospels, we find the Bible repeating a phrase again and again. Uh, Some event happens, and the scriptures, it says then, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled after that event, followed by an actual prophecy from the Old Testament. In fact, when it comes to the events of Jesus' life, there are over 30 recorded prophecies um, about his coming. Uh, The last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, uh, wrote in 450 BC. So every one of these 30 prophecies uh, is at least four centuries before Jesus was born. And some of them go back even 15 centuries. Now, I have a friend who imagines what heaven would be like. He he sees it as uh, uh, God having this endless video library that contains every historical event that ever happened and that you'd ever want to see. I mean, Netflix doesn't hold a candle to this. And when we get to heaven, we use our heavenly library card to check out anything we want to see. Um, Now, what event would I most like to see on my library card? I believe that walk that Jesus took with a couple of guys to Emmaus, a small town about seven miles from Jerusalem. I figure it would have taken them at least three hours for that walk. There weren't sidewalks then, and it was a pretty hilly road to Jerusalem. And let's read what that conversation was like in Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Remember, the tomb was now empty, okay? Okay. While they communed and reasoned together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What kind of communication are you sharing with one another while you were walking and are so sad? And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. He said, Are you the only foreigner in Jerusalem who does not know what has happened here in these days? And he said to them, "'What things?' "'And they said to him, "'Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, "'who was a prophet, powerful in deed and word before God "'and all the people, "'and how our chief priests and rulers "'handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. "'But we were hoping that it was he who was to redeem Israel. "'Moreover, today is the third day since these things happened.' Even some women from among us who arrived early at the tomb surprised us when they did not find his body. They returned saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then Jesus says to them, O fools and slow to heart to believe what the prophets have spoken was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to be, been one of those men hearing Jesus explaining himself in the scriptures? It's just an amazing story. Um, and... I have to give you a little bit of the Jewish context here, because this was the third day. And according to Jewish tradition and understanding, the soul doesn't really depart the dead person till the third day. Up until the third day, they could be recognized. But after the third day, the soul departs. And so I think this Jewish folklore was maybe in the minds of these men, as they were still hoping um, that you know, the spirit of Jesus would reunite with his body. Um, And they start going into what those women had said, and finally, you know, Jesus is, he he can't take it anymore, and he says, oh foolish men, slow to understand, slow to believe. And then Luke tells us that beginning with Moses, he explains it all to them. And that's what I would like to impress upon you this morning. Accept I don't have a three-hour walk to Jerusalem. I have about 20 minutes. So I am going to take us back into the Old Testament and just give you some of the highlights of those prophecies. Uh, so put on your seatbelts because we're going to have to go pretty fast. All right? Now, the the Old Testament uh, picture of Jesus was actually first... Pr- pointed out by um, our our children's teacher today uh, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, written about 1,500 years before Christ walked the earth. Uh, It's the story of the Garden of Eden, the curse that God puts on the serpent, and, of course, the blessing um, on the woman and to the people who would come after her. And I will put enmity between you, Mr. Snake, and the woman... And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Well, we learned three things here. First, the child who is named uh, to defeat uh, the serpent is the child of a woman. Now, that's very rare in the Hebrew scriptures because uh, children are usually the children of a man. Now, obviously not biologically, but if you look at the way um, people are described in the Old Testament, they're usually the son of someone, not the, not the, and the son of a man, not the son of a woman. Um, and this child is the son of a woman, which is an exception. It doesn't exactly say virgin birth, but it does give that anticipation. Secondly, we learn that the child would bruise the head of the serpent. And this is a picture for us of conquest and of victory. You, know, you may, may remember the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion, uh, where he symbolized that moment when he crushed a snake uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, a snake emerges from beneath uh, the, gar- the, uh, the devil's um, foot and it slithers over to Christ and... He's intensely praying and he doesn't seem to take note of the serpent until it's directly beneath him. And then he suddenly stands and he stomps and the serpent's head is under the foot. The third thing we learn about this passage is that the son would be wounded in the heel. And what kind of Messiah gets wounded in the heel? Only one who is hung on a cross. We move on to another major prophecy, Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, written about 1500 BC as well, where God tells Moses, I will raise a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak on them to all that I command him. It shall come about, that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, in Judaism, Moses was always thought of as the greatest prophet. I grew up believing that. Back in my uh, home neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, we had a, um, uh, a wall that people put graffiti on, even back then. And I remember someone wrote, Moses saves... No, Jesus saves, Moses invests. That's what it said. I didn't quite understand that. But I did know Moses was our greatest prophet. Um, And yet, Joshua even knew that Moses wasn't the greatest prophet because we know at the end of Deuteronomy, it says um, that since that time, no prophet has risen uh, in Israel like Moses. Uh, so Joshua was kind of saying, listen, it's not me, folks, but wait wait a while, there's one that, that is to come. And of course, when John the Baptist came out on the scene, uh, again in his prophet garb and his prophetic voice, the Pharisees came to him and said, are you the prophet? Are you the one? And he said, no, but there is one coming after me who is greater than me. And the Torah points to that one in the New Testament as Jesus, Yeshua. There's also prophecies about the coming Messiah in the prophetic writings. Uh, In Micah 5.2, we talk about Bethlehem. Um, uh, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, uh, though little uh, among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Uh, now, in the eighth century before Christ, Micah writes that a coming ruler would come to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. There were several Bethlehems, like Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and Bethlehem. Anyway, but that was the, this was a little Bethlehem, and uh, yet this was also the birthplace of King David, uh, the ancestral home of the king, from whose family the Messiah would come. But know what else Micah has to say here. He says that the ones' beginnings are from long ago, from days of eternity. Um, the words here are stronger in the Hebrew than in the English. And mikedem um, means from the east, from uh, the, before the sun rises in the east, or eternity past. And mimeolam means from days of eternity. Who is the etern- eternal one? Well, that can only be God, right? So how does God take on flesh and is born? In Jesus, our Messiah. And then probably the most uh, striking of the prophetic writings about Jesus comes in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, written around 725, BC, and this prophecy is clearly a one-chapter description of the Messiah in the Old Testament, maybe in the whole Bible, and very important for those who are interested in talking to Jewish people about Jesus, Uh, those seeking to find the truth in the Messiah. Uh, If you have Jewish friends or family, and you ever have a chance to just share one Bible passage with them, I really would suggest Isaiah 53 the prophet describes a suffering servant who gives his life as a guilt offering for many it describes him as someone who would be rejected and hated though he had done no wrong but through whose death our sins are forgiven it even hints that he would be raised from the dead we read in Isaiah 53 after the suffering of his soul he would see the light of life Uh, The problem my people face today is the same as that faced by the disciples, and it's the same that's faced by our world in general. Israel was not waiting for a suffering servant, Messiah, to come. They wanted a triumphant king, David. They wanted someone who was going to right all the wrongs, place Israel back in her rightful position. And today, I think people have this hope that Maybe there is something out there, something better that is to come. But it is all misplaced when it's not in the person of Jesus. The New Testament writers came to understand the purpose of Jesus' first appearance, his first advent, and quoted this chapter to explain it for the rest of us. And then, I just want to give you um, one um, more prophecy. Um, And there are so many I could give you. But Psalm 22, written about 950 B.C. Here's the crucifixion psalm. The psalm quoted by our Messiah while he's on the cross, paying for our sins, Now, King David wrote this psalm about 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth and about 300 years before the Romans even came up with a method of execution called crucifixion. Prophetically, he wrote things that modern doctors now say are surprisingly clinical descriptions of the sufferings of those undergoing crucifixion. All my bones are out of joint, My strength is dried up, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, they pierce my hands and feet. It describes those who ridiculed him as well as he hung, who despised him, who shook their head, who cast lots for his clothing. It was the first line in the psalm that Jesus uttered, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I've heard rabbis say that Jesus actually at this point was filled with despair and confusion. That he, but they really miss the point when they think that because what Jesus was doing was pointing those present to that psalm, to the full psalm. Uh, they would be rehearsing the words of that psalm in their, in their hearts and minds as if a narrator was describing exactly What was taking place. Now, I could go on really, truly for hours about Jesus in the Old Testament. I have some, even some material on the, um, in the North Ex and back in the patio you can look at. I hope you'll be interested in Uh, other ways that Jesus appeared, not just through the prophecies, but the awesome angel of the Lord, the sacrificial system, the rock in the wilderness, the holidays that point to him, the tabernacle, the priesthood, other character types that foreshadow him. Hebrew words and poems that all reveal him. The New Testament is the Old Testament concealed, and the Old is the New revealed. A research scientist and mathematician, formerly employed by the Pentagon, who researched the probability of one of this, uh, and the same person fulfilling all of these prophecies, these 30 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, calculated that one times ten with a hundred zeros after it would be the, the likelihood that would happen. And even if these numbers are close to being right, then the idea that the Bible just got it lucky? I don't think so. It's insane. The only proposition that makes any sense is that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be, and Jesus is who he claimed to be. A supernatural book from a supernatural God giving us supernatural truths about a supernatural Messiah who through the cross offers us a supernatural relationship with God so that we can live a supernatural supernatural life that has a supernatural destination in heaven at its end. Yeah, there is a divine plan. And Jesus is at the heart of that divine plan for you and me. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, as I said, but... In Science Speaks, Peter Stoner says that even 10 of the prophecies are true, that his way of explaining it is, is, if you took stack quarters two feet high across the entire state of Texas, don't ask me why you would do that, but if you did, and you put a mark on just one of those quarters, and then you found the one with the mark on your first try that would be as likely as as these prophecies being wrong. I want to close um, by telling you you can be sure in your faith in Jesus and in the Bible. Here we are in this Advent season and we have a message that is not only true, but it's indisputable. You know, sometimes we can get so caught up in all of the extras of the season, the gifts, the shopping, the what's coming at us in Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and all these different things that are bombarding us, when we really are here as the true bearers of the reason for this season, we know the truth. And we know it with certainty because the Bible is accurate and we have the proof and we have him in our hearts. You know, the odds of fulfilling that, those prophecies, one with a hundred zeros after it, until someone can figure out how to undo that, um, I think we're sitting pretty secure in our faith. But let's not just sit. This Christmas under the stars opportunity you guys have, I think that's fantastic to be able to connect with your neighbors, um, to be able to show the love of Jesus through giving um, uh, of, of your substance to the Samaritan house, all the different things that are going on right here in your own community that can show the love of Yeshua, Jesus to a world that so needs him. Um, The Christopher Hitchens can have all of the um, sarcasm and cynicism, but we have the truth. Messiah can give us opportunities to share the reason for the season right here. I wanted to share one opportunity that we've had in Jews for Jesus, which I'm very excited about. This Advent season. Um, and if you can go to the next slide. Um, we have, you know, when you think about Christmas time, you think one of the things you think about in the Christmas story is how there was no room in the inn for Mary um, as she gave birth to the Messiah. Well, we found a way of providing an inn for people who don't have room as well. In Israel, where the majority of Jewish people, less than one half of one percent, don't believe in Jesus, so that means the majority, um, excuse me, less than one half of one percent do believe in Jesus, which means the majority don't. Um, We have uh, so many different areas of ministry, but one that we felt God calling us to in this past year is to deal with a lot of the hurting people. Uh, particularly in Tel Aviv, and there are a lot of women uh, who are uh, addicted to drugs, sex trafficked. They were living on the streets of Tel Aviv, and our missionaries reached out to them, not just with physical uh, help, but with the help of the gospel and the message of life in Jesus. But they had nowhere to go. Uh, There are some... some homes and shelters for men, but there really weren't any for women. And so just beginning in September, we were able to find and furnish um, a house near Tel Aviv that has 10 bedrooms for us to continually take care of women uh, who are sex trafficked and get them through the initial halfway house kind of stage of things before we can get them into rehab and get them into, the, into uh re-establishing themselves in the world, but uh, they're hearing the gospel, they get devotions every morning, they have a staff of nine trained missionaries who work with them 24-7, and um, and we're excited about this women's shelter, and so if you want to pray for something that Jews for Jesus is doing that's a little different, um, yeah, we're, we're known probably a lot more for handing out gospel tracks on street corners, but we do a lot more than that. And, um, and if you uh, are listening online and you can see that QR code, you can, um, you can capture that and find a way of um, responding uh, to give toward ministry of Jews for Jesus. I also wanted to, before I close, tell you that this is, I kind of feel like, I don't know if this is a good word to use in the church, but I feel it's like a trifecta weekend. Um, we have Thanksgiving. We have the first Sunday of Advent, and tonight begins Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, uh, where Jewish people around the world will be lighting candles and remembering uh, that festival. And uh, I brought a brand new book that we are just putting out for children on uh, on the menorah, the missing menorah, and it's the story of Jesus in Hanukkah. And if you have children, Or grandchildren, you might want to pick up a copy because it's been off the press about two weeks now. So it really is brand new. Um, And lots of free literature. And uh, more than anything else, I, I want to leave you with just a challenge. Jesus wants us to be his light in this world. We've lit one Advent candle. Let us be that light of that Advent candle into the community this week. Um, and then next week maybe we can double it and the following week we can triple it and who knows what God will do. Let's pray. Lord God of Israel, we thank you for the one who came, the one who came to live as someone who could understand all that we went th- we go through and and. and lord uh, and live a life father that would make a difference not just for his generation but for all eternity Uh, we pray and thank you for this season of advent we pray that in all these celebrations even in hearing christmas carols piped into places that people will listen to the words and recognize that the one who's come, Emmanuel, God with us, is indeed Jesus, our Messiah, for Jew and Gentile alike. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.